Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource, where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Hey, what's up, y'all? Dan the Fitness Man coming to you. We got an awesome podcast today with Justin Webb, Foundation for Wildlife Management, talking all things elk, and then we're talking all things wolf, reintroduction it's going to be an awesome episode buckle buckle up man because this is we're going to go down some rabbit holes and we're going to get into some nitty-gritty stuff and you're going to learn some stuff not only about elk but wolves and how it's going to affect your future and what you can do about it action wise shout out to vortex optics for being one of my greatest supporters for this 2019 season thank you guys the uhd ultra high def 10 by 42s lights out check them out check out the new razor 4000 i can't say enough about this glass and their vip warranty in fact i got an old pair of binos i just sent in to have uh, the icaps repaired for free because they back up everything they do with that vip warranty no questions asked Kenetrek boots are seriously gold. I was in rain almost every day this elk hunting season. Literally, I did not have very many dry hours in the field. And with their gaiters, I was able to keep my boots dry. Those gaiters are still, the discount code still live. Check the show notes. You can get $25 off those gaiters. I used OnX Hunt the entire time I was hunting every day, always tracking trails and saving my elk trails and really intimately learning my country the layers the road lists the wildfires i use that in wyoming in a unit i'd never been before so if you're considering using some sort of phone-based gps slash land ownership and navigation tool look no further than our next discount code elk shape 
get you 20% off. And I have the Elite, all 50 states, but you can just pick one state if that's all you're doing. No worries there. Elk 101's got their discount for the University of Elk Hunting. Corey will come on here at the end and tell you all about that. Rocked the new XL4800 this year. Was able to carry um, one bull down in Wyoming. Packed it out with that new XO. Pretty streamlined. I'm digging the extra room. And if I didn't have that inside rain bag that comes, you can order that as an accessory. And I think that's a must, not a should. I was able to keep everything important dry in the downpours that I got, which was really important. Matthews Archery. I got the Traverse and the Vertex, but guys, honestly, that Vertex is going to be tough to beat. I'm really curious to see how they're going to come out with something in 2020 that's going to be better than the Vertex for us short draw guys like me. And then the Grim Reaper Broadhead 3-Blade. I'll, I'll have to post a couple photos on social. I did take a frontal on my Wyoming Bull. For the record, I'm not a frontal. I don't condone it. I'm not like promoting frontals, but if you hunt solo like me... At some point, you're going to learn how to either be okay with passing elk at five feet or where the heck to shoot an elk frontal. Uh, I've only killed a few bulls frontal, probably six or seven, but uh, I've only had one bad episode, and that was way early on when I really didn't know where to put it. But if you study enough and really know the anatomy, there is nothing blocking an arrow from a frontal, but you darn sure better have the right angle. I don't want to go down that road too much, but anyways... The Grim Reaper 3-Blade, that is the greatest blood trail ever. That video is on YouTube. It's probably censored a little bit, but uh, man, it's episode number two of the Wyoming Hunt. It's on YouTube. Check out that blood trail. It's insane, and that's why I really stand by, and I will condone fixed broadheads only with a heavy arrow for elk. The end. You will not change my mind. Boning archery, th uh, using the blazers, 2-inch. I went with a offset, a three degree. That's what I usually do. This year I went massive helical to the left after clocking my arrows and figuring out which way they wanted to come out of my bow. It was pretty cool. Elk shape camps, man, we have six or seven lined out. We're going to drop registration and dates and all the exact information at the 1st of November. I'm still lining all that up, but we're hitting the road. We're coming to your town. Price is going to be between four and five hundred bucks. That's going to cover all my subject matter experts' travel, and I think it'll probably be life changing for most people. I can't wait to share all the success stories from the guys who have never killed an elk, came to an elk shape camp, and coincidentally got their first bull. I don't believe in coincidences at all. I believe everything happens for a reason, and I think you get what you put in in this life. So, shout out to all those guys. I'll be plugging you on social soon. We have all these discount codes for listeners. Uh, if you're interested in them, please check out the show notes. I don't want to go through them all. I just want to give a shout out to all my blue collar, backcountry, do-it-yourself, over-the-counter, public land, badass elk hunters who gave it hell this uh, year. Elk hunting is a gift. This podcast is dedicated to you all. And no fluff coming from me. You guys know my style. Just a straight shooter. Uh, you either love it or you don't. But... I can't change who I am, and I'm all about hard work, delayed gratification, discipline, and making decisions daily that are going to bring you a better outcome in life, with your family, with your marriage, and in the field. Today's Justin Webb. He's a local guy here, and he's going to educate all of us on how we can better manage the wolf scenario in the lower 48. Thanks for listening. You have a lot of options out there. The only thing I ever ask for you guys is that if you want to give us a review on iTunes or whatever, 
do that. But more importantly, tell a buddy about this podcast, share the good news of Elk Shape, and uh, just keep grinding on your goals, guys. Guys, what's up? This is Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man. I am at my house sitting down recording live and in person my favorite style with a gentleman who is a Idaho, he's an Idaho resident, born and raised in Sandpoint, Idaho. Grew up in north, north Idaho, steep and deep, thick country, abundant game when you grew up. You're a few years older than me, um, family man, blue collar guy, and we're going to talk about, basically the reason I brought you here today is because you're doing something super special that tugs at my heartstrings and I really want to be an advocate for what you got going on. Rarely do I bring anyone on here and just beg guys to get involved. But this is one of those things where I'm like, I'm going to be pretty passionate about what we talk about today. So I want to apologize to anybody if yeah, I don't want to offend anyone. But we're talking about stuff that's dear and near to my heart. I'm very passionate about elk hunting. And I'm very passionate about my son being able to elk hunt. His son to be able to. I want those traditions to carry on. And I've been trying to track you down for months. You're a busy guy. You wear a lot of hats, uh, so I'm really excited to have you here. Justin Webb, he is basically a guy who wears a lot of hats, like I said, but but ultimately he's just like you and me, guys. He's he's a hunter, and he's an outdoorsman. He's a sportsman, and he loves wildlife just like I do, and he wants them to do well. So let's give your introduction of yourself and kind of your background, where you're from, and, and, and what you do, man. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the invite. I really appreciate it. And uh, I do stay fairly busy, but uh, I appreciate you making the time to reach out. I, we, um, <clears throat> I, I was uh, raised in North Idaho, grew up off the grid, um, learned young that uh, feeding your family is, uh, you know, hunting is a big part of that. And, and that's just kind of the, the lifestyle that we've always lived, hunting, fishing, hiking, camping, you know, uh, spend a lot of time in the backcountry. Um, very passionate about uh, all all wildlife. Um, you know, elk obviously is is uh, right at the top of my list, but uh, also um, very passionate about bear hunting and uh, controlling predator populations and learning and trying to understand what's um, what it takes to balance predator prey ratios and and uh, I've I've uh, had uh, technician jobs working for the fish and game department. Try to stay as involved in that realm as I can. Um, I haven't missed a fish and game commission meeting. I think all all of them but one I've attended for the last three years. Um, and try to stay as involved and up to date on what's going on there as as what I possibly can. So many people in today's world, they get on social media and, and they have these complaints or concerns or things they're really fired up about, but I don't see a whole lot of action. And, and it really, uh, it, it's a sad situation when, when that's taking place on a regular basis, you, you cannot create positive change if you're not willing to step up and say something, you know, and not just blurting it out on social media, not just being a keyboard warrior, but actually going to the people that, that make the decisions that affect what, the things that you and I do, the things that we're passionate about, you know, it, it just seems like um, a lot of people, maybe they're they're fearful or maybe they believe that they can't make a difference. And I'm here to tell you, you can make a difference. Um, when when I walk in the Fishing Game Commission meeting, th- those folks know me by my first name, and and uh, they understand that that uh, I'm passionate about what it is that I'm that I'm talking about. And 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 not only that, but that I I do my homework. You know, I'm, I'm not just going to go in there and rattle off a bunch of stuff that that's not factual. I 
I really believe in, in uh, being educated and, and being involved. It's important. You, I heard you talk about um, how important it is to you that, uh, that your kids get to have the opportunities that you have and uh, have had. And I can tell you that's my why for everything that I'm doing today. I've, I've got uh, I've got a 17-year-old son that be- I, I truly believe in my heart that he deserves the opportunity to experience elk camp and elk hunting as I grew up experiencing it. And it's changing and those traditions are being lost because of a lot of the changes that are taking place. And so, yeah, it's important to me. Um, happily married, uh, lived in and around Sandpoint the majority of my life. I thought out of high school there for a while I was going to travel and make money, and I just realized that uh, after um, having taken my hometown for granted for a number of years, uh, getting out in the world and seeing what's out there, I just decided I'd rather be at home and and, uh, struggling financially (laughs) for the most part um, and happy than to be living in the city somewhere stressed out to the max and and uh and have money so um that's a little bit about me i love it well let's get into the fact that you got a lot of elk hunting knowledge and experience a lot of folks listen to this podcast because we preach a very disciplined lifestyle justin's never heard our web our podcast so forgive me guys but we i i promote elk hunting as your why to do everything that sucks to get up early and train to put your phone down, engage with your family, to make intentional decisions to fill their cups up in the off season with trips or, or camping, taking the kids outdoors, um, taking your wife on dates, being fiscally fit, not being in debt, be, managing your money, hunting is not cheap, and all those things I do because I love elk hunting, and that's why I, that's why I got up and trained at 4:45 today a.m. I don't prefer to wake up early in fact i probably would have slept till 7 a.m without an alarm clock you know but uh that i do it because i love being unlimited in the mountains which is something that i don't know if a lot of guys can say and it's not that i'm special it's just that i put the work in shoot the weapon daily things like that so that's what our podcast is about and and all all the while we teach you how to kill elk or make shorten up your learning curve that's the end and that's what we do with the camps and all that stuff but um but elk shape to me is more about a lifestyle, kind of one that we probably share. So I didn't start elk hunting until 2001. When did you start elk hunting? How did that journey begin? Oh, wow. Um, first elk hunt, I, I would say probably I was maybe 15 or 16, probably a sophomore in high school. Um, had some uh, backcountry camping hunting experience with family members and uh got into archery hunting a little bit you know i had a had an old hand me down uh uh martin cougar bow with little round wheels you know you had to have a different yeah. pin a, about a half inch apart for every 5 yards that you went out to shoot and that was my uh, first bow too was martin cougar yeah it it uh, and and amazingly i mean looking back at the, the the way that things were then and and uh my knowledge level at that point in time I was fairly successful with that little old Martin Cougar bow. You know, you had to be right on top of things. But um, anyhow, I just uh, just always had a passion for it. Hearing an elk bugle, there, there is nothing like hearing an elk bugle, especially if you get up close and personal with them. And and that's just something that's always been in my blood since the the first time it happened. I think I killed my first bull in 1996. 
Um, it was a rifle kill. I, I actually have not harvested a lot of, of bulls with my bow. Uh, most of my kills have been with my rifle. I, I've always had the ATAG since they've broken that down anyhow, and I hunt hard and have tons of experiences uh, with my with my bow, and, and uh, I have taken a few bulls with my bow. But uh, That's really impressive. For those listening, so Idaho does this A-B tag thing. So I'm an ATAG kind of guy. Obviously, they give me most of September to archery hunt. And then they give you if you don't if you're not successful you got like five days maybe at the end of October after rifle hunters have already gone through with the B tag, correct? Uh, which is like the bulls have pulled off the cows mostly, and your guess is as good as mine where they go. Uh, they're licking their wounds and they're in rough country and they're 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 laying low. So for you to have that much success with those five days. You, you know what's up, man. That's impressive. I definitely put some time and effort and energy into trying to understand what they do at that point in time. It's my, it's, uh, to me, it's a, a very challenging hunt. If you get early weather, that, that's a real key factor to success. And um, I, I've been really blessed in, in my, my hunting experience. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's just a fun hunt. I'm, I've always done it all by myself. I, I've never been like a big um, you know, party hunter. If you go to elk camp or what have you, everybody goes their own directions. We go hunt. At the end of the day, you meet up and, and sit and tell stories around the campfire kind of thing. The majority of my hunting personally has been in the backcountry by myself. Um, <clears throat> I think I've only... I don't know, out of 16 boiled poles, I think I've had help packing two of them out. Um, just, I just prefer that way. You know, there's something about being out there by yourself. It's, uh, you know, some people go to church, I go to the mountains. And it, it uh, it's just always been, uh, you know, a big part of, of who I am. And, and uh, I really enjoy that style of hunting that um, that, that that late season offers. Yeah, I, I think I've packed out majority of my elk solo, broke them down solo. It wasn't easy when I first started. Obviously, you get really good at it, and you learn some tips and tricks along the way, but it's very rewarding. Hunting solo for me, I've preached it on here. I'm glad you brought it up. I'm a solo elk hunter for a lot of reasons, but it always boils down to just speed and efficiency, decision-making, um, never stopping, squandering a second, second-guessing, or having a committee meeting on what which direction we should go or what we think, how close the bull is, or did you hear? The, there's a lot less noise. If I throw out a bugle, I don't have to hear some guy shuffling through his backpack or something or standing near me. I can hear better, uh, and I go off instinct, and I just think I'm just so much more successful solo. Now, I enjoy coming back to camp and hearing how everybody's day went, but ultimately the only time I want somebody with me is when I'm packing out elk meat. But uh, uh, I'm with you, and I think guys have – I've gotten so many emails after hunting season. So many guys have been listening to that advice and trying it on their own and really experiencing – the solitude, you get a lot of clarity when you're solo. There's no distractions, and you can look kind of how your life's going and kind of check in and be like, okay, this doesn't make much sense that I'm stressing out about this or putting this much energy into that. Like you kind of just get this dose of crystal ball where you can look in there and go, okay, this is where I need to do at home. And also you're better at elk hunting that way, in my opinion. So I love to hear the solo stuff. So 96, that was – peak elk herd before that winter came in 96 crushed that snowstorm crushed this year we had ice storm in spokane that winter crushed the elk i've heard horror stories of just piles of carcasses up they just couldn't get out and our elk don't winter that they're not like traditional elk in north idaho that these mountains aren't high 
what five six maybe a yeah, seven six thousand feet is is pretty average ridge top depending on which section you're they don't winter and if they do they go down to creek bottoms they don't go down to river bottoms so they're not like in ag ground for the most part a lot of these bulls are live pretty high you'll find their sheds pretty much almost where they rut in a lot of places it's crazy they didn't used to anyhow it's right. it's changing but it we can is. get into that later <laughs> we are going to get into that brother <laughs> so and the whole elk thing in idaho has changed and we're going to talk about that um so after you're 16 and you kind of got some success rolling tell us about your learning curve as an elk hunter like what things do you look back and you're like I can't believe I used to do that. Um, I would have, I would never even think to do that anymore. What was your early on mistakes, if you will? I would have to say, and I, and I would share this. I think that one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they're elk hunting is they try to hunt them like whitetails, and they spend so much time hunting, and they don't travel. They don't get to where the elk are before they start hunting and and in my opinion i watch guys struggle with that day in and day out and and they start hunting right from the truck and they spend the peak of the prime hunting time slowly hunting through the area that i blow through and don't even start thinking about hunting until i'm in the in the in the zone you know um obviously scouting plays into that a huge amount if you don't know what where the zone is you're not going to know if you don't know where those critters are, are feeding um, and, and traveling and where their bedding areas are. You, you know, it's important that, that you identify that so that you know where you're going. You're not just wasting your time. But I spend a lot of time um, covering ground when other people are, are slowly hunting their way through through sections of ground. And I think that that's helped me be successful. Um, another, another thing that that uh, and I never even thought about this until, until you said, asked me that question, but listening to the guys that have gotten it done and who have lived this part of their life previously. Some of the older gentlemen um, had some real deep conversations with a plumbing contractor. I was framing houses at the time. And uh, there was just a couple of little tips that he he had given me about watching elevations, um, looking for food sources in in certain terrain that really resonated with me. And and I, I started looking at it. I started trying to identify stuff on maps and I just started putting in the time you know spending summertime uh covering ground just just flat out hiking and uh, I think that that's really helped me a tremendous amount in my elk hunting career yeah how much of knowing your area plays a role in how you hunt drastic I would say it's drastic it's that's the number one key for me I can go into a new area and find elk and and be successful but I would say that the ability to do that came from having a, a section of ground that I learned like the back of my hand and came to understand what those elk were doing, when and why, so that I could take that knowledge and, and look at other sections of ground and try to relate to it. It wasn't until I had some, like a, a, a piece of ground really figured out that that I could go into a new section of ground and, and say, okay, these are completely different elk. They have different habits, different patterns or whatever. But what can I look at that's familiar? What is it, you know, what, what can I look at and, and look at the patterns and, and try to recreate what I had figured out in, a, a, uh, you know, the place that I've been hunting for a number of years and use the knowledge from that ground to incorporate to the new ground. And, and I started finding success there as well. And so um, I think that knowing the ground and, and a little bit about the elk behavior is, is vital to success. I, I love that. You almost build yourself a template of this is the basically the building blocks of an elk's 
Appetat for Life. This is what they do to live. This is how they travel. This is why they travel this way. Um, this is why they want to feed. This is how far they go to feed. And tra- I'm, elk are different. I've, like I was telling you before we record, I've killed a lot of elk in different states. I remember Nevada last year was like, there was one herd that traveled seven miles from bedding to feeding. It blew my mind. And yeah. then there's elk here in Idaho that go feed up a ridge. They're on top. Of, and then in the morning, they're heading back down to the bottom. It's not very, it's like less than a half mile. That's all. That's what, that's where they live. Uh, the other thing you said that resonated with me was getting out of the truck and start hunting. And you see guys hunting in places you blow by. The biggest bull I've ever killed in Idaho, I got out of the, got off my dirt bike. I could hear them all bugling in the basin. And I knew the area like the back of my hand. It's probably the area I'm the most familiar with. I took off heading way past them. I mean, way past them. And I passed two hunters that were like kind of looked like they were like sneaking around, getting geared up to drop in on these elk. And one of the guys was really upset with me. He's like, we're hunting here today. And I didn't even like, usually I'm really nice and cordial, but the way he said it was so aggressive that I literally, and I actually had headphones in. I was listening to music. I had heard the elk bugle. This, that's hilarious. But I was listening to music because I knew I had a three-mile hike to get in front of these elk. Yeah. And I just was like, huh, what? Okay, good luck, guys. And I just went right, blew right past them. Not an hour later, the bull that was in that basin was pushing his cows right by me. And I shot a giant bull probably the bull that was in the basin with all the satellites and it was just knowing the area and knowing when to to hunt and when to just hike that's huge i've never heard anyone say it quite like that but i think that's like such a good nugget for folks to tune into is like know when it's time to cover ground and the other thing i took some guys hunting last year uh they they were gracious enough to help me pack out my bull i'd taken half out so we just need to come in and get the last quarters and rack and they're like, we'll come in. And I was like, well, I really don't want you hunting here or learning it. But they're such good dudes. I was like, both of you bring bows. I'll bring a bugle tube. We can, we'll hunt till 9 or 10. And then we got to get the meat up. And I got them right on bulls right away. Bulls that I think I would have killed right away. And they were just so passive and so trying to be so st- like whitetail hunting is what I would call it. Like not trying to break a branch, not trying to make any noise, worried about how much sound and and trying to, and I literally pushed one of them. I'm like, pushed him towards the bull. I'm like, literally go up there and shoot that bull right now. I'll keep him busy. And, uh, they had a good, we didn't kill anything, but, um, I saw the bull at 10 yards twice. Like they just didn't get shots off, but man, that was a learning lesson that I think will help them in the future that this is not whitetail hunting. It's completely different. And, uh, being aggressive and knowing when to be aggressive, I guess is, is kind of important. So let's round over to guiding and the fact that you you are currently a guide. I am. Who do you work? Do you work for yourself or do you work for an outfitter? No, I work for Clark Fork Outfitters, uh, Molly and Leon Brown. Okay. I've talked to Leon. I've tried to beg him to take me cat hunting for like a day a day rate versus I, I'm not, I can't afford a $6,000 yeah. cat hunt. Um, and so I've called him before, and, and he's mentioned that he, he actually was willing to work with me a little bit and never ironed out. But um, So do you guide everything for them or just elk? I, I mainly focus on elk, um, and it uh, there's been a lot of things that go on there. But Leon has 
a lot of people don't know this, but since I was a, a teenager, Leon's family has had some of the best hound dogs in the state, and and they, uh, he's very very successful, and and it's um, you know they most of of the hunts I don't deal with the business management, I don't deal with money, I don't deal with any of that stuff. I um, I've known Leon since I was in grade school, and uh, um. It just went to work for him, uh, you know, kind of excited about the opportunity, but, it, you know, more so excited to be involved with uh, a childhood friend. And uh, they, I'd venture to say that, that um, the lion hunts are one of the places that help keep the business running because the prices are extremely low for a lot of their other hunts. And, and I think that that's one one of the the top topics of uh, you know clients that come in is is uh, the, the hunt pricing is is a little bit different, but um, you know success rates aren't aren't extremely high as as they might be in other places. Like you mentioned earlier, how difficult North Idaho is to hunt, and for me, having never um, or very rarely hunted anywhere but North Idaho, I don't know anything different, and so you know, um, having bulls at, at 20 or 30 yards and never getting a shot is normal for me. Um, that's just part of the experience of being in North Idaho. And a lot of people come here to hunt and they don't, uh, they have a different expectation. You know, a lot of guys come from back East and they've been watching Primos videos and they've been, you know, they're all excited about it and they get there and, and uh, an elk bugles on the other side of a Canyon somewhere. And, and they say, you know, well, you know, so what do we do? Like, well, are you ready? Let's go. And they're like, go where? Well, across the canyon. Well, how do we get over there? Well, we're going to dive through this hole and blow out the other side and get out ahead of them. You know, they're working up this ridge feeding or whatever, and they just look at you with this deer in the headlights look. Seriously. And, yeah. Like, are you serious? We have to go over there. Well, that's <laughs> that's North Idaho elk hunting. you you got to get in the brush with them and and uh, kind of duke it out. It, um, How long does a client last? Uh, I've always made a joke with my dad in North Idaho that anyone we've ever hunted with or brought to us, like we give them three good days. Like by the end of the third day, they're looking to take the next day off or hunt somewhere close. It really varies. And, and I've learned also to base um, the method and style of hunting and where we go on the clients and I try really hard with all of my own personal clients I tell everybody I view my job as to be helping you get whatever out of this hunt that you want out of it if you want to work your guts out and and you want to do 15 miles a day in the roughest rugged ground that there is and you're looking for a, a 330 to 350 bull we're going to do it and and you're not going to outwork me no matter what the situation is um, but if if you're uh interest is is getting to hear elk bugle and just be out there and experience it and relax and and decompress from your job in the city we can do that too and and so it's um it really varies but i I will say the number one thing that a person can do to help them be successful elk hunting is to get in shape man if we if we could if, if half of the clientele that we have was in half the shape that they should be in we would have a lot higher success rates. Our opportunity rates are high, but when the opportunity presents itself, you only have a few seconds to get it done, and you're so busy breathing hard that you can't you can't even settle your body down to make it function right. It's it's virtually impossible to be successful in those situations, and it's I don't know how I, you do it, man. I see it time and time again. You know, you you um, you work hard and you and you do your job and and uh, you you put an elk in front of a guy and and it's hard for them to 
um, because of, you know, physical, not, not, not degrading any of these people or putting them down, because I certainly don't want to do that, um, but just watching their body, the, the, the physical conditioning that they have, um, not allow them to get it done when you, they've done all their work and you've done all your work and it's all come together and convergence happens and the big bull steps out and, and they're so out of shape and so out of breath or, or trembling so bad that they can't make the shot. Um, it's, it's a pretty discouraging feeling. It's, I've learned to really appreciate showing people what it can be like to have the elk hunting experience and to have the success without them killing because that happens fairly common. Oh, for sure. The success rates will back that up in Idaho. So knowing that you are from the ground that you're guiding in, are you allowed to say what, what areas that you guys operate out in case people wanted to look into Sh that? Sure, yeah. It's in, it's in the Coeur d'Alene Mountains. Um, all of the north half of Unit 4 and all of 4A over along the lake, along Pondre Lake. Okay, so they could hire... I'll leave a link to that. They could even have you as a guide potentially sure. shorten their learning curve. And I and I'm all about public land DIY, but I have no I got no issues with someone hiring a guide if they live out east and they really want to shorten their learning curve. Why not hook up with a Justin Webb who's done this his whole life and you can just fast forward so much information um, in a season in in literally in seven days. You could you could go you could almost fast forward five seasons in seven days with a guy hunting in arguably some of the toughest country there's there's a lot of reasons why this country is tough i think let's just start with the topography and in the terrain features here so north idaho is not tall mountains like i think they're really small mountains in my opinion from where i've been out of state like um i killed my bull at ten thousand feet in wyoming this year like that's there's nothing around here 10k but you got a few around six and the elk are in the 4,000s to 5,000 somewhere, and some are lower. They're elk everywhere, really. But from your experience as a guide and a hunter, and we're talking North Idaho specifically, yeah, what have you seen this year specifically and the last five years? How have the elk's behavior changed? We don't have to talk about why yet, but how have they changed? What have you seen? What are your observations? Um, drastic changes, uh, definitely movement uh, from areas that they used to spend the majority of the year. Um, a lot of a lot of those high country elk where I've always really enjoyed hunting elk, uh, the numbers of elk, it's not that there are no elk there, but the numbers of elk there are so much fewer. And the numbers of elk down in the lowlands, in the river bottoms, in the farmer's fields, um, along the foothills, has increased exponentially. Um, and it uh, it definitely causes the experience to be completely different. You know, it, and five years ago, there were ridge lines that I could hike a, a client out with me and, and we could bugle or call into every single basin and I could get a response from darn near every one of those those basins, you know, that it wasn't uncommon to, to talk to a dozen different bulls in the morning. And, um, and now in the same exact ground, if you can get an elk to talk to you in there, you've done something. And, uh, and it's not that there are none there, but there's far fewer there than, than what there used to be for sure. And their behavior patterns are different. What are they doing that's different with their behavior? Uh, far less bugling for sure. Why? Because every time they bugle, the wolves come in, come in on them. Okay. Um, so far less vocalization. 
uh, are you out there at nighttime at all, back backpacking and hunting near a tent where you can hear bugle? You should hear bugles, but you're not. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Interesting. Um, herd sizes. Have you noticed that they've actually increased as far as how many bulls uh, a typical herd bull will have, or have you noticed that they're now in smaller groups? Like, what are you seeing? My own personal experience, just just being a hundred percent raw and honest here. When I used to go scout for elk, and you you would find elk in just about every basin or every other basin, um, you know, to some degree, you'd find wallows that were being used. Now you cover a dozen basins with no sign, no elk, and then you hit one that's chocked full of elk. And and learning how to adapt and and change my own behavior patterns and my own hunting styles to be able to suit, um, you know, it's. It, used to be able to take a little bit more risk. You used to be able to blow in there. And if you blew it out, if you, you know, if you dropped into a basin and you messed it up, that's fine. You just hike up back up to the ridge top and you go two basins over and you, you start over and you do it again. Now, when you blow the elk out of a basin, that's oftentimes that's your hunt for the day. You, you know, it's, it's, it may take you a couple more days before you find a basin that has elk that are settled down enough in there to act like elk. And, and that's just my own personal experience. I couldn't but. agree more. I, I run a lot of cameras. I have a cabin in one of the units in Idaho. So I, I've had it for 11 years. I, I cut firewood. I pick huckleberries. I ride dirt bike trails. I, I float the river. My in-laws have a cabin down the road on the river. I mean, we're there, dude. Like, it's our second home. Yeah. So I've seen this place evolve. And coming off this season... I was telling you before we started recording, I have killed, I have packed bulls out of hell holes year after year. And I don't think I, the last year I didn't kill an elk in Idaho was like 2007 or eight. And now I killed a bull in Wyoming and I went to Idaho with two tags in my pocket and I've killed two bulls in Idaho probably every year for over 10. Um, and this year I was like, I'm going to be pickier. I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill a rag bull. And so the first few days I had a lot of encounters um, but I had to work for him, Justin, like way harder than ever before. Like, I love it when I can get a bull, pick a fight and eventually call him in to my location. You know what I mean? I call, I'm calling solo. A lot of my shot opportunities are really up close and personal, especially if I prefer broadside. I don't like the frontal and I've killed quite a few frontal. So I'm, I'm always kind of like waiting to the last second to pull my bow back to get the right angle. And I had pretty good action but i had to work so hard for it number one i had to find elk like they weren't in their usual haunts there was cameras left out that were just there was nothing on them and it's just like unprecedented i was like this is this does not make sense to me and i started noticing that there was quite a few logging operations going on in places where gates have been closed for years and now the loggers are in there they keep those gates open Logging trucks are going up and down the road all hours of the night to haul loads out to the mill. So you got a loader showing up at midnight, and you got your first truck there at 1 a.m. And they're like every hour on the hour. Jake breaks going, and then you got your loggers showing up. You got saws running all day. I love logging. I'm all about logging. I know what logging does for feed, especially in our country. I'm all about logging, but. You, I'm starting to get really concerned with like companies like Potlatch, not to throw them under the bus because I think they're awesome, but I think they're getting a little greedy. I think there's some drainages where there's not a tree left, and it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, where are those elk going to winter if there's no timber to knock snow down? You know what I mean? Uh, they eat the lichen off the trees. There's no trees. 
Um, so the logging and the access in North Idaho really drives me nuts. Like uh, there's too many roads. There's a lot of logging going on. And then you compound it with what I would say arguably is tenfold over objective wolf population. You know what I mean? Ten, t- in my opinion, ten times what it's supposed to be. Um, and then generous hunting seasons, man, these elk are going to change. And so my point was, is yeah, I called in probably six to ten bulls within the first five or six days of my hunt. I didn't pull back once. These bulls were, in my opinion, immature. Um, these bulls did not bugle their way in. We, I'd have to go to them, follow tracks, or they'd bugle three or four times in the span of first light to 9 a.m., so you damn sure better kind of know where they want to go. And once you get to where, they've, where they're hanging out for the day, you got to do things right, get the wind right, get in as tight as possible, and kind of do slow play, cold call, and head on a swivel. And then, yep, here comes a bull, and he's sneaking in. That, to me, that's not what I, that's not elk hunting to me. That's not what I, I get excited about. I want a bull slobbering, ready to fight, ready to kill me over, over breeding rights. And that's what I – so – I probably shouldn't have passed now that I know I ate both tags and I had plenty of opportunities to kill a bull, but that's not what I was interested in. My point to all this is that I was seeing a four by five with nine cows, a four by four with two cows, a five by five dinky five by five raggy is all rag with two cows. It's like these little bulls who have no business running any cows. I like that back in the day when there'd be a herd bull, he's a 300-inch six-point, which is really good for our area. He's heavy. His body size surpasses all the other bulls. He's completely intimidating, and he sounds like the devil himself. And he's got four, five satellite bulls that are pesky little buggers on every finger, and they're bugling at him and bugging him, but they have no chance. I love those days, and I haven't had those days in years. And this year was by far my worst year of uh, – We I, I had four guys staying at my cabin. I camped out in a tent most nights, but any night I came back to the cabin, the reports were very similar, like uh, didn't hear a bugle today in areas where you should. Or, yeah, they, they bugled like three times, and they shut up. Or you'd get a bull to – maybe answer you a couple times but that was it and if you got in tight you'd have to like slow play you couldn't be aggressive you 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 know so i think it's a combination of smaller bulls running cows and they don't want to lose them and these elk are dispersing because honestly if you're a herd bull and you have double digit cows that's easy pickings for a wolf i mean the bigger the group someone's going to get killed and i think they figure that out too um, so that's kind of my notes. I don't know what the rifle season, which starts here soon, is going to be like for those guys. I, I want them to do well, um, but I know no one got an elk in my camp, which is unprecedented um, at all this year. No shots were taken, nothing. So uh, it was a weird year, and we had a lot of moisture, more probably a little bit more than, than normal, but they're pretty wet mountains anyways. I'm pretty used to hunting in wet conditions, so... Um, what's your thoughts on all that? 
I couldn't agree more with you. They, um, I, I had a conversation on the way over here today, actually, with a gentleman that uh, is one of my hunting idols. He's uh, uh, considerably older than myself. He um, has far more hunting experience than I will ever dream of having. And uh, he, for for a, a man of his caliber that could pretty much in any given year go kill any bull that that he had wanted in the past, he he hunted three or three or five days without hearing a bugle, without seeing an elk, without uh, being able to locate the elk that he's used to seeing, um, and and it just you know I I sit and I listen to that same story be repeated over and over and over and over. There's another gentleman that I know that it's actually on our board of directors for the foundation and. He's a very avid elk hunter, and, and uh, he's taken lots of elk, and he did, did end up killing this year, but he, he told me that this was the hardest year that he has ever had as far as um, trying to get close to bulls, trying to locate bulls, trying to find where the elk were. And <clears throat> I really, truly believe that it's not that the elk are gone, it's that the elk have dispersed, and and they're finding, they're taking up residence, you know, um, out in the river bottoms, in in the lowlands, in the private ground, um, in the foothills, uh, there north of Sandpoint, there in the the Selly Valley, along the Pack River, there. When I was a kid, there were never elk that lived out there, and and now there's herds of elk running up and down the river out there in people's backyards, screaming their heads off, because when they go back up Grouse Creek or they go back up even on the Schweitzer side, they they get pressured by wolves, and they've just learned to make a living in the river bottom. And so, um, you know, I guess that's one thing that I would offer you is don't feel alone. I mean, it's it's happening all over the place. Um, I, I was pretty blessed to get to hunt with a couple of buddies this year that uh, we had never really hunted together. It's a couple of other guides. We had some some uh, scheduling conflicts and different things that took place this year. Uh, Leon actually was in a, a horrific uh, traffic accident, and and so uh, some hunts got pushed around and stuff. Long story short, the three of us guides were off work all during the same week, and and we went out and hunted together and that was some of the most fun that I've ever had um, in the elk woods it was a real reminder to me as to you know it's it's easy as a hunting guide to allow your job to become a job and and uh, I think I had kind of lost touch with with some of my um, passion and the fire and the the driving force behind what gets me up in the morning and uh, I got to experience some of that again and we got close to some uh, a couple we worked a couple of good bulls and and got some pretty pretty fun exciting experiences there we nobody killed anything but uh, just had a great time that being said as a whole just about everyone I know is sharing the same experiences that you're sharing um, I went out on the last day of archery season here on Monday and and uh, God, I'm jealous. I wanted to get out with all that snow, and then the the storm finally broke. I was out of family time. I couldn't do it. But how was it, man? Uh, I'm gonna be honest. It uh, I left with tears in my eyes. I was pretty crushed. I you know I went into a spot that's um, historically just been phenomenal. It's one of those places. It's a little takes a little bit more effort to get out there. Uh, a lot of the closer in uh, portions of that ground get hunted and and that's where the elk go and and that's kind of been their sanctuary per se i know where it's at i know how to hunt it i know how to work the critters that are there i even know some of the bulls by name that live there and uh, i went out there there'd been snow on the ground for three days I covered all of that ground and never cut an elk track, not one time. I, I heard something coming through the brush underneath me at one point. I smelled something, smelled dead, and I thought, no, don't get distracted. You know, you got 
like you need to kill this is your this is your day to hunt you need to be out there and kept staying focused and i rolled out off the end of the ridge and um cut where uh, nine wolves had just come out of the basin underneath me and rolled around the ridge up on top and you know and i, I stopped and i just kind of tried to soak it in and just trying to enjoy being out there because i've i've uh, you know it's as frustrating as it is i, I try to remind myself that you don't have to kill to enjoy it. I already got to talk to a couple of good bulls. I got to locate some bulls that I know personally. Um, it's nice to know they're still alive when you kind of hear them talk. You're like, oh, man, you made it another year. Yeah. I, I have a really good relationship with a lot of a lot of bulls, and I hunt specific bulls uh, when I've already killed. Now, if I hadn't killed Wyoming, man, that first bull I called in, that 4 by 5 he was he would be dead dead. You know what I mean? I'm not a trophy hunter. I'm a meat hunter. But when you know when you're hunting a specific bull and you're learning all about him, it's fascinating. You know what I mean? And it's nothing like it when you hear him bugle the first time. You know their bugle. You're like, God, man, you did it. You made it another year. You made it through winter. You didn't get chewed up by wolves. Congratulations. You know, I love it. I mean, we're rooting for the elk. I know that's a dichotomy, being a hunter, but you want to kill them. But we're rooting for them, man. They got a, they got the they got a lot going against them. For, for sure. You know, I, I oftentimes you hear people, especially you watch the, the dynamics of people's, um, you know, hunters, different conversations that take place on there and, and the guys that are looking for an easy elk. And I try to help people understand, you know, if you're not out there and you're not willing to get out there by yourself and, and brave the elements and, and brave the, you know, the, the hikes in in the dark alone and, and uh, work through all of that part of it, it's not going to mean to you what it would otherwise, if you just go tag along with a buddy and he calls a bull straight to you and you kill the first elk that you see, you're not going to have the appreciation for that elk as if you had scouted him all year, learned where he was going, found him on camera, went back during season, figured out that the the bugle that you were hearing actually is the bull that you want it to be, figure out how to work him, you know, blow it a couple of times and get in there and get him killed. That's going to mean something to you and it's going to stick in your heart and it's, it's going to be different than, than, a, you know, a set of antlers to brag about. And, and there's uh, I just got to share this with you. So uh, it's a little bit embarrassing on, on one hand, but at the same time, it's a pretty exciting little story. Um, the last couple of years, I've had clients that have told me while I'm set up calling that I hear that they hear uh, a beef cow and, and we, we're miles you know, it's an, it's an hour's travel time from anywhere to get anywhere, basically from where we're hunting. And, uh, I'm calling and stuff and I've got this client inexperienced from back East, never been around elk before, never been around moose before. And, uh, I set up, do some calling sessions. I'm over a ridge from him a little bit. I don't really hear what's going on on that side. Nothing shows up, nothing happens. I work my way back to him and I ask him, you know, did you hear anything, whatever? And he says, well, there's not any elk, but is this like open range? And I said, no. And he says, I, I swear, I heard a cow down here mooing like, like a moo cow. And I'm thinking, okay. So, you know, and I try hard not to roll my eyes and, and uh, like, all right, you know, well, come on, let's go. And I'm thinking to myself, he must've heard a, a cow moose or something, beller and whatever. So fast forward, it's the next year. And I've got a guy that's been elk hunting. He's killed a couple elk before. He's somewhat experienced. We've been in, talking to elk, um, seen some moose, been been around some critters and stuff. And I set up to call for him. Same story. He says, I heard this real quiet moo sound. I'm like, what? He says, yeah, is, is there cattle up here? And, you know, again, I'm like shaking my head, trying to figure out what in the world's going on. So the following year, this is last year, 
uh, I make a trip out there scouting by myself and I get some bulls riled up good, like really ripping. And, uh, I drop off this back, uh, ridge from there, just trying to get out of their way and work my way back up to the truck. And sure enough, I hear a moo cow and it sounds like an Angus bull bellering. And I'm thinking, what is going on? And now, so, so then I'm, then I'm feeling bad. Like, okay, you're such a jerk. You know, here you've been judgmental and, and these poor clients are trying to tell you that there's a bull down here and, and you kind of passed it off. And I, I dropped in there and sure enough, there is elk everywhere. And I, and I don't get to see the bull, but I hear him as he takes off. And, uh, so anyhow, so this year, uh, my, my buddies and I, my, my, uh, fellow guides went w- with me in there and we actually were able to locate that bull and work seriously? him hard. Yeah. So what is his bugle? Just seriously, uh, rah. It it I don't know how else to tell you. It sounds like an Angus cow. That's awesome. It's it's uh, it's pretty incredible. He's got and some age on him now. That's four years. Yeah, yeah. He's no less than five. Um. So yeah, he's definitely got some age on him, and he and he acted like a five year old. We got in there and tried to play with him a little bit, and made a couple mistakes, and he boogied. And uh, but you know we were able to come back and locate him again. And we we also found there was a bull that I had on camera all the, the last couple of years. And last year I actually was able to get a client on him, and he just wasn't able to seal the deal. And um, this, you know, I, I think that it, it was a it was a very killable bull, but a beautiful, really nice bull. And I uh, got back in there and located him as well. And so getting to know elk on a, on a personal level like that, it's just so much more rewarding when you do find success. If you've already put in the time and effort and energy and everything that comes into it, you know, it's the whole storyline. It's not just the, it's not just the drawing your bow and stuff and an arrow and something for me. No. And I think everybody's narrative is a little different, but I think folks that tune in here kind of get the blue collar lifestyle. Look, man, I can't afford a $20,000 Utah ranch hunt, um, especially for my first year bow hunting. I wouldn't want that success. Uh, that's that's like a f- – I don't even understand. Like it's hard for me to even like articulate how much that's not hunting for me. I want it to be painful. I want to do 15 miles a day. I want to get beat down by brush, and I want it to just feel like it's almost impossible every year. So when it does happen, it's all, everything I did leading up to it was worth it. You know what I mean? It's like, and I'm pretty hungry right now. Like I, I'm not, I'm not used to having two tags not punched on on the counter here. Uh, I'm pretty hungry. And I think that was good for me, like to go back and, and start creating my roadmap for how 2020 will not be the same. And so, yeah. I'm I'm going to do a, a solo podcast here coming up next guys and it's I'm going to go through my hunting season in detail. And I'm trying I will not bash other hunters because I feel like we got to stick together. But I will definitely speak truth. And the truth of the matter is if you're a hunting celebrity, if you're a celebrity, if you have a lot of means or a lot of influence if you will, and you choose to hunt, you know, areas where Basically, you add up all my mortgage payments on this house that you're sitting in right now, and I still wouldn't even cover the entry fee, not alone pay the guide or the tips to the cook, uh, the trophy fees on top of that for inches of bone. Like, dude, that's not me. That's not relatable. I train so hard. That's like that's like me training to go play an NFL football game this Sunday, but instead I'm I'm lacing up my boots to play flag football. Like where's the test and where's the delayed gratification and where is like the school of hard knocks like to me that's part of elk hunting is because it's just work and it's so hard 
and that's why I love it. You can't master it. So for those that are listening and just you're with me on that, man, don't worry about what anyone else is doing. Celebrate the three by four you killed on public land on the over the counter tag in an Idaho where all the tags sold out before season even started, man, you're doing something awesome and you're feeding your family the best pro like celebrate that. And I'm going to continue to promote kill a raghorn bull, man, kill any elk with a bow and celebrate its life because you did something special. It doesn't have to be, there's not a six point behind every tree where we hunt period. And speaking of tactics and changing dispersion. So by the end of the season, the last couple of days, I kind of knew riding on the wall. Wasn't going to kill two bulls. I'd be lucky to kill a bull. I'm still pretty stuck on shooting a mature one. I started game planning. And I don't like what I'm about to say. But I'm putting tree. I have two tree stand locations picked out for 2020. I'm going to have to stay in a tree while they bugle. But I have two locations picked out on two different herd bulls where I know that if I sit that stand for a few days, I'll get them killed. One is over a double wallow, and i got to get in there early when it's hot. It'll be hot early September. And the other spot is just, I call it the triangle, where this 350 bull, that's right, I said 350, I saw him twice with my eyeballs this year, and I got him on camera, and he he doesn't have cows. He doesn't even roll with ladies. He bugles on his own a lot. A lot of times he'll start up at 11 or 12 in the middle of the day. And for no reason, he'll just start bugling. Um, if any other bull has cows, a lot of times he'll show up in the morning and your hunt's over. Because as soon as he starts bugling anywhere near that bull, that bull is going to shut up, hook his cows, and get the H out of there. And he's just a stud. Um, I've, I've hunted him for four years now. And he, he definitely got a little bit bigger this year. I, saw, I had him at 30 and I had him at 42. Both times range found. Neither time I got pulled back in time. So I, I never pulled my bow back. Um, but I know a couple places that he won't go. And I know a couple places where he will cross a creek specifically. And I'm going to have to hunt him out of a tree stand. Now, you don't have to hunt elk in Idaho like that. But to kill a specific, like these herd bulls that we're talking about, they're tricky. And uh, I hate that I'm saying that, but I'm, I'm advertising it. I am putting tree stands up, cameras up. And uh, you will find me in a tree stand. If I do hunt Idaho, it'll be a tree stand next year. Isn't that sad? I think that that's a, a very productive method of hunting elk. If you know, if a guy puts in the time to scout and knows the area and knows the critters ahead of time. Um, for myself personally, <clears throat> I've got that what's over the next ridge syndrome so bad that I I cannot make myself sit still. I, you know, I'd, I'd, I've always told myself that when I'm old and can't hike anymore, I'll start whitetail hunting because I think that that's the most productive method of killing a really big whitetail buck as well. And and uh, there's definitely bulls I think that I could kill in a tree stand. So I, and my hats off to you for for uh, being willing to uh, change it up, you know, mix it up and, and try something new and do something different. You know, especially if it's a bull that that uh, you have a relationship with that you, you're really anxious to to get after. Um, you know, it's it's. Uh, I really um, am passionate about the way of hunt, the the style of hunting that I've uh, been successful with, you know, being very aggressive. Um, you talked earlier, I, I heard you make a couple of uh, statements there that, that I can really, really relate to and, and really hit home for me. And one of them was, uh, you were talking about the reasons that you hunt by yourself and acting on your instincts. And, and when I have somebody with me, I feel as though I'm 
very commonly trying to explain to them the reason I did something or the reason that I made a movement and, and, and really, you know, why did you take off running and run a hundred yards and then stop? And I don't know how to explain it to them. All I know is that that's what I needed to do. And, and so, so I did it and, and it's and, and playing on my instincts as a predator, uh, in my opinion, has helped me become far greater, uh, you know, found a far le- um, higher level of success when it comes to, to elk hunting, specifically with big bulls. Um, but uh, anyhow, that that's, uh, I, so I commend you for that. Well, let's talk about these, uh, the elephant in the room. So um, Justin is the guy who runs the foundation for wildlife management. Uh, if you haven't heard of that group, I'm going to have a link in the bottom. I'm writing him a check today. We're going to go over everything that they do and they promote. Um, and it is basically a way for you. Look, if you're not going to go out there and trap, like, look at me. I work from home. I still don't have a snowmobile. I would need a snowmobile to trap effectively. And I would have to leave my house every 72 hours to check my trap line. Um, not all of us can just go out and howl and locate wolves, get in tight and throw out a, a pup in distress sound or a uh, rabbit in distress and get a shot. And quite honestly, I'm not that good with a rifle. I'm pretty, I'm pretty with a bow. So to, for me to actually do something about the wolf population, I got to probably sponsor some guys who know what they're doing is what I would call it. That's kind of what I would say your foundation is adding an incentive for these trappers for all their overhead which is tremendous to run a legitimate trap line my first wolf story from this year it was april 11th i took my daughter shed hunting um down in the quarter lanes and we went five miles from a paved road on a four-wheeler hit snow um it was a drift and so i had to fence post her and so i left the wheeler i fence post her maybe 300 yards we got around the corner, and we're glassing a herd of elk, and I'm just trying to see if there's any bulls, if this is a herd of bulls. I'm trying to see if any bulls are still packing. Uh, you can tell if they've dropped. You know, pretty good wintering ground. And I had a wolf tag, and I had brought my rifle. And in the juggling of getting my daughter snacks and lunch and water and loading her up and getting her geared up, I left my rifle, of course, in the truck. Sure as shit. The, the elk start freaking out. And I'm like, oh, something's not right here. Look to my left, coming down the same cat road that we're standing on is an alpha male running solo, trotting down the road. And I'm like, Avery, this is going to be interesting. And sure enough, fast forward, the wolf came in to, come here, Avery. My daughter's here. Hurry. So Avery, how are you, how you doing, sweetheart? How old are you? Talking to the mic. How old are you? Five. So, have you ever seen a wolf? Yeah. How close? This close. That close. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close. So, this alpha is cruising down this road, comes around the corner, and now he's at 40 yards and closing. And I'm like, at this point, I, I got to say something to get him. He's in the direct path of me and my beautiful little daughter. So, I'm like, hey, wolf. And he's just kind of like, what? And he he 180'd real quick but stopped. And it took me like probably minutes to get him to like convince to get out of there. And luckily it wasn't a pack. 
I probably have an unhealthy amount of lack of fear of wolves because I don't. There's the dog to me. Um, he finally took off. But that's this is her. You're looking at my daughter in person, like this cute little thing taking her shed hunting, trying to show her the outdoors, and we can't even shed hunt without a big alpha rolling down right on us. So, all right, head out, Avery. We're gonna finish up. Shut that door for me. So. That was my first wolf encounter this year, probably not my last, but I've never seen a, a wolf that low. And honestly, he didn't give a shit less about us. Like, honestly, I, I could have shot him with a bow or a pistol. Didn't have any of that with me. Um, so it's changed quite a bit, Justin. Um, I've told people on this podcast, I've seen over 100 wolves with my eyeballs. And that's just throughout the years. A lot of times I'll be sneaking in on a bull. I don't call a lot. And so I run silent a lot, and then I'll be sneaking on a herd, and I'll look to my left, and there's two or three sneaking on the same path. Uh, that's happened many times. I've been barked at while loading my dirt bike in the back of my truck while the truck's running. Uh, I've been growled at doing the same thing with my dad and his diesel truck running, and they still growled at us 50 yards. Um, I've been surrounded many times. Uh, I've seen a mom run by me with pups as she has a calf leg in her mouth. I've seen uh, I've seen elk get chased up a ridge on a trail that I'm on. I've had to step out of the trail so the cow could get by me to see the wolf right on her butt. And then I interrupted that wolf. I was like waved at it. Um, double, yeah, probably about 100, I would say. And I've filmed, like my biggest YouTube video is got is just me basically elk hunting and then being surrounded by a pack of wolves. And obviously I got great footage of all the wolves. Um, so all that is to say, like a lot of wolf in- encounters for such a small area. Um, so can you give us the, the narrative as to why do we have wolves? Whose idea was it? What was the parameters? And what's actually where are we at now? Well, I can tell you a little bit about that. I, I won't go into great details. <clears throat> I don't know exactly whose idea That's that it first, was. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and, I, and I'll tell you uh, the reason I don't know, because there is a reason. So when wolves were reintroduced, I, I honestly believe that a lot of people think, oh, you know, they, they it's a conspiracy theory. They did it to end hunting. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's not true. But I do know this. I don't believe that a lot of the people who have their hands in game management had any idea how fast they were going to reproduce, how far they were going to travel, how many critters they were going to kill and not consume, not to mention the ones that they do consume. I don't think that they took into consideration the fact that they um, add uh, you know, an extremely heightened level of stress to our wildlife while they're on the winter grounds. I don't think that they took into consideration the fact that uh, cows and does would be aborting their fetuses due to that stress. I don't think that they took into consideration um, the the fact that uh, they would not come out of the winter um, and go into the summer months uh, with the weight on their body that they that they may have otherwise had. Um, <clears throat> there, there's so much more to you know, the the big picture when it comes to adding wolves as an apex predator to the predators that we already have, lions and bears being um, obviously the key point there. So 
they brought these wolves and they introduced them. They released them. Um, a lot of people had interactions with wolves before the game departments were necessarily admitting that there were wolves in the area. There was a lot of different stories uh, similar to that. I was working for um, the fish and game department back in 2000. I want to say 2003 maybe, and uh, I was uh, doing waterfowl habitat management up at the Vander Creek Wildlife Management Area up along the, the Canadian line, and, and it was around that time frame they had a, a wolf that was collared that had uh, come from Yak, Montana, and um, they when they located that wolf, she she had come across the state line, they'd come over flying trying to find her, and when they located her, she had just killed a six-point bull by herself, and I, I think that a lot of people don't understand um, just how uh, efficient of a predator that wolves are. You know, a lot of guys say, oh, you know, well, wolves are, are efficient because they hunt in packs, and, and, you know, and that's the reason that they're able to take down an elk. In my opinion, that's completely false. Wolves are, are extremely efficient predators on their own by themselves. You, you add added numbers to that, and it just, um, you know, compounds that, that efficiency level by drastic amounts. Um, the state uh, was instructed to manage for 10 breeding pairs and 100 wolves in the state. Fish and Game Department said, well, to ensure that we never end up with the wolves being relisted again because it took, you know, uh, ample numbers of years after uh, the feds wanted to return management to the state to get that accomplished due to all of these lawsuits from um, organizations who uh, stopped um, management of wolves for that extended period of time. All the while, wolves are, are exponentially expanding extremely rapidly. Anyhow, so they said, well, to make sure that they're not going to be relisted, we're going to manage for 150 wolves minimum statewide and um, <clears throat> go from there. At this point in time, we're sitting at well over a thousand wolves documented and over a hundred breeding pairs documented. And, and uh, those um, wolf counts do not take into consideration wolves that are transient wolves. So if you look at the northern panhandle of Idaho, it's basically 50 miles across. So if a wolf lives in both Idaho and Washington, that's not counted as an Idaho resident wolf. If, if a wolf lives in both Idaho and Montana, that's not counted as an Idaho resident wolf. So if you, if you start thinking about the numbers of wolves that are actually exist on the landscape right now today, it's astronomical. We, we know from fishing game data that um, our average pack size is seven wolves, each pack having an average litter size of seven pups. Some packs, uh, up to 30% or more, um, are, are uh, actually having more than one litter in each pack because there's more than one female. And, and you know, that's something else that I think that was a big misconception. We were told, or National Geographic taught everybody when we were kids, that, you know, wolves are like people. And uh, only the alpha male and female breed, and they only kill the sick and the weak, and they, you know, um, live like humans do, and and they don't travel very far, and they have a home, you know, and blah blah blah. You know the story. Everybody knows the story. It's not true. It, it's a dog. When it comes into heat, it gets bred. When when my chocolate lab comes into heat, 
I've got to be careful that there aren't big males digging underneath my fence to try to get to her. And it's no different with wolves. You know, that my one of my favorite documentaries, it's a it's by National Geographic and they're talking about how wolves are monogamous and that they, they only breed the only the alpha male and female pair breed and it's a pack of like seven or eight wolves. And in the very same video, five minutes later they show the female off and talking about how she's bred with three other males during the week's time that she's in heat. And and it just, um, you know, it really, <clears throat> when I first started getting involved in the wolf topic and the wolf issues, I was fired up and I was angry. I, I had seen things that frustrated the heck out of me. I, I, had, I had witnessed elk populations plummeting. I'd seen our moose just completely collapse. And, and I was, I was upset and, um, pretty fired up, pretty vocal about it, uh, on social media and that sort of thing. I'd get a lot of people who had, you know, they were upset the other direction and they were just angry as can be. And, and there's death threats and there's insults and there's pointing fingers and, you know, and you dirty dog and blah, blah, blah. And one day I just had an aha moment and, and it really has helped me to interact with people who believe differently than myself, um, when it comes to the wolf topic. And, and that's, it's this fact those people are standing up for what they believe based on what they've been taught. And I myself was taught the exact same stuff watching television growing up. And I believed because it was National Geographic that it was all true. The realization that those folks portrayed human characteristics onto wolves in order to create emotion, which generated funding. They, they sold videos and they're good at it. And, and that's the reason why all these people have these, these false beliefs, because that's what the, the American population has been taught that a wolf is. And so trying to help them understand that it's not is, is a challenge. And, and it's, um, it's a dynamic problem. The, the, the fact that we uh, only harvest on average 300 wolves a year and, and those numbers, the, the seven in a pack, uh, seven per litter, just that alone, if you didn't have other, other litters in, in some of the packs, that's 700 pups being born every year. Where are they all going? If the, it's not sustainable. If the pack size is, is seven and they double every spring, where are all those dogs going? Cause we're only, we're only taking out 300 a year, right? So if the pack size of seven, uh, remains at seven at the end of the year, then something's taking place. Yes, the, the mortality rate of wolf pups could be high. I'm not going to argue that, that fact at all. But the number one killer of Idaho wolves right now is wolves. And the reason for that, in my opinion, is because they've expanded and dispersed so much. And, and you know, uh, we've, we get a pack here and they've got a new litter. Uh, a younger male is, is coming of age. The pack splits and divides, and now all of a sudden where there was one pack, there are two. And, and they start fighting over boundary lines and territories. And they're very territorial. Very territorial. Especially against any other type of dog. Canines. Canines, they don't, you know, they have, <laughs> they don't discriminate. And that's why, that's probably affected hound hunting, honestly, for cats and bears. is like Drastically. Do you want your your family member, because that's what they are to these guys who have hounds. And think about your dog if you're listening, especially if you're not even for hunting, but if you have a dog. I love my dog. It's my dog's part of my family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and would you want to take your family member out and try to get a bear or a cat treed, only to have come over and see that it's just a spinal cord and a head left, and it died a pretty miserable death? You know, that sucks, man. It, it's led to a lot of complications, and, and there's a lot of people that have experienced that. I, I know a guy uh, a week and a half ago just lost five dogs. Five? Five. 
And if you think about what a guy puts into that to, to get to raise five hound dogs, train them, all of the, the money invested, the time invested, you're hunting them consistently uh, to, to bring them up and, and create the, you know, a successful, uh, well-rounded pack of dogs and, and to lose the majority of that in minutes is is devastating and heartbreaking and there's guys that i know that have completely stopped uh hunting mountain lions or bears because their whole pack of dogs got killed in it and it broke their heart and and so they just gave it up so that you know they're very territorial they're killing each other off the uh the numbers in the state that they have documented they they claim are remaining right around a thousand wolves and at first i thought i don't know if i believe that but I'll, i'll tell you i do and this is the reason the number one killer of wolves is is wolves and that's the reason why we now have wolves spread all across the state of Washington, clear to the other side. There's there's wolves documented now on the coastline of Oregon. There's wolves all the way down into California. They're trying to transplant wolves into Colorado, and we've had collared wolves make it to Colorado from Idaho. And and those wolves are traveling so far so quickly that uh, they're, they're dispersing. One of the things that, that's extremely ironic to me is everybody, one of the biggest arguments that I get when I'm talking about wolves and managing wolf numbers is, oh, well, wolves saved Yellowstone. They changed the rivers. The latest reports from that Yellowstone. Is, that is, is that like a movie thing? That, that It is, yes. That's the video. There's the most propaganda, and it's like I'll see people. So KHQ is a local TV station here, and I swear they love hot-button wolf articles. And I got to quit reading people's comments. I never comment because like I owned a business in town and I didn't, now I don't, I might start commenting, but like, again, I go back to what you just said. Like these guys were told and taught a certain thing from that you and I both were taught. They don't know any different. And it's, it's almost laughable for, for me to go on there and try to comment and change somebody's mind. I don't comment on who I voted for. I don't, it's, it's tough. So again, bringing you on today is more like, all right, guys, I got the solution. Like, here's the solution. You don't need to go on social media and try to change people's minds. You got to take actual action with your checkbook. Like I'm going to do today. And you got to write Justin Webb's organization, a check for 35 bucks or whatever you can afford. Cause this is what's going to create change. So yeah, these wolves are at a tipping point. They're dispersing, they're killing each other hunters are harvesting them but it's largely through trapping let's be honest incidental kills i mean most hunters don't even see wolves they'll hear them but they i've seen i think i've been lucky to see that as many as i have but honestly that's probably because i'm not bugling i've always been a kind of a sneak in kind of guy but they're there they're prevalent so where do we go from here Jeff? so I'll, i'll tell you the um there's a lot of people that are complaining out there and I don't get into a lot of the details. You know, when you first when you first started talking about wolves, you asked, you know, where did they come from? Why? When did they? When were they transplanted? Who did it? Who's responsible? All that kind of stuff. And I, I when when all this first came up, and I started seeing uh, dead elk strung out along the backcountry, and and our moose numbers just plummeting, driving up Lightning Creek, and you see three or four dead or, or alive moose with their hindquarters chewed off, laying in the road. Um, I was angry and. Uh, I don't go back and I, fo- I I try not to focus on all that stuff because there's so many people who are and who have. And, and to me, it doesn't do me any good. My question and my challenge to everybody who gets on Facebook and says, shoot, shovel and shut up. Every person who's angry about the wolf problem, what can you do right now today 
to make a difference? What can you do that's going to make positive change? And, and this is our answer. We come up with the Foundation for Wildlife Management, and I'm not um, the original founder of the organization. For the record, There's a, it's a group of elk hunters from Sandpoint, Idaho, who were sick and tired of watching our elk numbers plummet and watching the wolf numbers skyrocket. And uh, long story short, as an organization, we now have over 2,300 members. We have... Um, Membership from 33 separate states, I believe. Um, it's not just a resident uh, organization, but we do reimburse hunters and trappers up to $1,000 for every wolf that they harvest. Um, and, and those amounts vary based on time of year, uh, the region uh, or unit of harvest, um, and the method of harvest. As a, a passionate elk hunter, I felt it was my duty to get out and try to target wolves, to try to help with the problem. And so I started trying to learn how to trap wolves. I'm not a trapper. I, I'd never trapped anything in my life. But um, had I've had a lot of success, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mean, there's definitely guys that are getting it done far more than me, but I, I have trapped 18 wolves now, and, uh, and I've learned a lot from that experience. But... Um, <clears throat> That's my challenge to you. We have reimbursed for over 600 wolves. And and if you think about what Idaho would look like if those 600 wolves were still on the landscape, I, I can't tell you what it would look like, but I can tell you it'd be worse. You know, we, we've had record-setting depredation problems with livestock across the state the last three years in a row, and we're on our way to do it again. And it's... Um, it's devastating. And and like I said, we're only removing on average 300 wolves a year right now. And, and 700, more than 700 are being born every year. We have to do something to increase our wolf harvest. Our hunter success rates right now are less than one quarter of 1%. So um, do hunters harvest a lot of wolves? Yes. The majority of that is done while they're deer elk hunting and they happen to bump into a pack of wolves and they get a shot off. That being said, some of the guys are getting it figured out. And guys right now, um, some friends of mine uh, from North Idaho this last week from the Stuck in the Rut crew, um, Tom and Travis Snyder, they're going out, they're howling, they're locating wolves, they're getting as close to them as they can, and they're turning on a pup in distress call on a Fox Pro, and that's been dynamite um, this last two seasons. I've heard a lot of guys finding success that way, and and I think it's, it's yes, playing those off. Yes, guys can shoot lights out. And I've had uh, Travis on here before, and I know Tom. And they're they get after it. Their whole family is amazing. Uh, their whole family is incredible. Um, thank God for them. And they're members, and so they're getting paid. And so, what what does Tom get when he does that? When he you know he he does it after work. I know this because I I know him. He's worked a full day. Uh, these wolves have been causing some problems in this area. He goes out and hikes a lot of ridges, howling. He has a howl on his Fox Pro. He gets an answer. He works all the way over to him, gets in tight, gets him killed, gets one killed, packs that all the way out and checks it into fishing game, which you have to. Like, what what does that effort earned him in, from your foundation? So it's a reimbursement of their expenses. And and this all came about because we, we were informed by people who trap for a living that a guy could not afford to trap wolves. He said, you'll go broke if you try to do that. And and I didn't realize at the time, I thought I understood at the time. Now I understand because, and this is something that I, I want to make sure people understand this. 
by law, you were required as a trapper to be at every trap set every 72 hours. A lot of our wolf packs travel so far and so quickly, they they oftentimes are not coming back through that ground except once every three to five weeks. So for an entire month, I'm driving for an hour, getting on my snow machine, snowmobiling 35 miles, and checking gear in an area where there's no sign of life for a month straight before the wolves ever come through and I get one crack at them coming by. So for every one of the 18 wolves I've harvested, I've spent $1,600 just for fuel. And and a lot of people don't realize that. Why don't you just hunt them? Well, for for the very reason that, that I just mentioned, it's less than one quarter of 1% success rate for hunters. It's 37% success rate for trappers. I have tried hunting them. I've hunted and hunted and hunted and hunted. I've yet to pull the trigger on a wolf that was not in a trap. Um, I've had them inside of 50 yards. I've had them challenge bark me. I've had them come around me. Uh, you ever missed one at 20 yards with your bow? Shot up for 30? <laughs> oh my gosh. No, but I can I can tell you that uh, I once walked up to a wolf in a trap and had it pull its foot out and run away from me. Are you kidding me? <laughs> not kidding. It That's was, the worst thing that could ever happen. It was devastating. Yeah. It, it not 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 only the loss of that wolf after I mean a guy a guy is killing himself, you know, you're you're driving as far as you can in the truck, you're putting getting on your machine, you're freezing your tail off, you're breaking trail 4 or 5 feet of snow at a time. And uh, you finally get the the opportunity to connect. They finally come through. The wool or the traps are not frozen to the ground. Yeah. The wolf steps in a in a two inch circle that you've picked out off of the entire mountain to to make him put his foot. You get him to put his foot there, and he gets caught. And you walk up there, and he jerks his foot out and is gone in a flash. And and it uh, it was it was a, one of the most devastating experiences I've had in the woods. Um, definitely still crying over that. It was a tough one. But uh, you know, a guy that that's the thing. A guy just has to can be consistent. They they oftentimes guys will call me and they say, you know, I heard that there was wolves in Johnson Creek. I'm going to go wolf hunting up Johnson Creek. Can you give me any pointers? And it's a struggle for me. I kind of giggle inside, and people don't understand Johnson Creek. Maybe you know, 10 miles long and five miles across. And in one night, those wolves will hunt 10, maybe 15 basins or or drainages the size of Johnson Creek before it gets light again in the morning. You keep saying that, and I don't know if people are understanding you. So like, for example, Ruby Sue, that little golden doodle out there, I can, when I go scouting and I bring her, which I don't bring her anymore because I'm afraid she's going to get killed by wolves. I used to bring her all the time. I would literally like, I don't, you'll believe me, but like I, she, she does not want to be on the four wheeler with me. And I'm like, Rube, we got 10 miles of road. She's got a gate. She's got this trot that she can do where it's so damn efficient. She's chilling and she's covering ground and she's right behind the four. No, I can't go in third gear, but I'm just cruising, putting behind her. She can go for days at that and she's covering ground. Dogs are mind blowing. They're like Kenyans, man. Like they were, they are built for like this endurance and then they can flip it and be a cheetah and out sprint an elk when they need to. And if they don't get to that, they got a backup partner waiting on the other side of the ridge. I mean, um, when you hear wolf's hound, or howl on every finger and you're in the drainage, there's a reason why they're all positioned where they're positioned, man. They can kill solo and they can kill really well as a team. And they learn extremely fast. So sharp. Extremely fast. So what about um, snares? Like, let's say you find a wolf kill and you know they're coming back. I took the wolf trapping class and I don't even know, 
I took one of the first ones. So someone was saying there's another one I might have to take. I'll ask you about that in a second. But the guys in the class, the guy that there was two trappers teaching the class. One was the foothold guy. One was the snare guy. The snare guy was kicking the foothold guy's ass because they were trapping for fishing game. And he was like, yeah, I, I'm way more successful. I, I, I have to find a kill, though. And when I do, I just back up 100 yards and find all the little trails and set these snares. And the alpha gets to feed first. Uh, and then he comes in, and they all stay back. And so they don't know that he just got snared. And then the next one rolls in. He's like, I can usually get most of the pack in one shot. Um, have you tried snares? I, I have snared some wolves. You know, um, snares are by far the most cost-efficient way to get started targeting wolves. But I'll tell you, it. Um, and I have had some success. I, I've snared a few wolves. But uh, I learned a few things from it. First and foremost, right now, um, it, we have uh, a proposal that's going to legislation uh, this January that will remove the snare diverter requirement. So I don't know. You took the class, so you're familiar with what a snare diverter well, is. Well, we better explain it. So a snare diverter, a snare is a is a cable loop that basically works as a cinch. Um, when a wolf runs through it, it, it cinches down like a lasso around the neck right behind their ears, cuts off the blood flow to their brain. They go to sleep no different than a UFC fighter in the ring, and, and that's the end of it. Um, they just don't wake up again. So <clears throat> in Alaska, they were doing studies trying to figure out how to keep moose and caribou from getting caught in a snare. And they came up with this contraption that they call a snare diverter. And it's a, a piece of number nine wire that you build in a, in a V shape over the top of your snare. And the concept is your snare is hanging below it. Your, your snare loop is hanging below it. And these two chunks of number nine wire are sticking out on either side of the snare. And the concept is as a moose walks through it, it's going to hit that wire with its nose and push the entire snare and everything out of its path and and walk on by and not get caught well there's some some issues with that um the first time i caught a moose in a snare was was a bit of a rodeo i actually had to do some research to try to identify how to release it and and uh to do it without it being harmed um and uh i i caught that moose in a snare that had a diverter on it and i thought i was all confused i, I mean i thought this was supposed to avoid this from happening or keep it from happening so um what long the story hell short did you do how did you get it? <laughs> it's a long story. I, I So <laughs> people probably won't even believe this, but so I lassoed its front feet. I took that rope and, and run it around a tree and just kept pulling leverage on it until I got it to rear up like a horse. And when he did, I just ran and dove over. Yeah. So, so I ran and I dove over the log, this log that was laying there it was kind of a blowdown, And I was able to wrap that rope around the log. And as he reared up, because I had stretched him past where his nose could reach to, he just tipped over. And when he hit the ground, and I had read this on, on a blog in Alaska from the fishing game department up there, and uh, he went into shock instantly. And so he's laying there on the ground and he didn't move, and and it and it worked exactly like they said. I, as soon as that critter hit hit its side, it just went limp completely. So I go running up there, and he's been trying to kill me for an hour, and so now I'm scared to death. I'm shaking and everything else, and I go running up there, and I throw my coat over his head, you know, and I cut the cable off and and uh, take off running like crazy because I'm expecting he's coming after me. He doesn't move. So I go back over there, and I get a really long stick, and I reach out, and I flip my jacket up off of his face, and he kind of picks his head up a little bit and puts his head back down, still doesn't move. Oh my gosh. 
pretty soon he starts trembling and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, oh no, this is awful, you know. So I go running over there and I get a stick and I wedge it up underneath his flank by his back end. And I don't want to get gored, so I'm trying to stay away from the business end. I get get that thing wedged up and I start prying him up to his feet. And when I finally got him pried over so that he was on his knees, that bull, like flipping a light switch, leaped to his feet and squared off with me. And, you know, and thankfully there was trees around and everything. So I just got behind a tree. He turned around and walked off, you know, completely nothing wrong with him. He was completely healthy. No problems at all. So then it happened again. Same exact situation. Where are they getting? The snare is going around their neck? It's going right around their nose. Oh, right around the like, very tip of their not, nose. Okay, yeah. So so the snare diverters, in my opinion, from my experience, did not work. Copy um, that. So the other thing that, that took place, and, and I know a couple of different guys that went out and they were all excited. They got their snares. They went out, they set up, and they come back, and there's a dead deer in their snare, and it devastated them. You know, I mean, here, all these guys are fired up, and we're trying to save our deer and elk, and, and they go out, and they try to make this effort, and they have this bycatch issue, and, and they're heartbroken, and they pull all their gear out, and they throw it away. What's happening that we've learned is that these snare diverters, this big chunk of number nine wire hanging out both sides of this cable loop, which the loop itself is, everybody tries to hide that, right? You're camouflaging it so they don't see it. Um, Two things. First and foremost, never set snares in an area in a winter ground or in an area where there's deer and elk and moose. Wolves travel far enough. You can set snares in areas where those wolves uh, are dropping down to get into the winter range. You can set snares away from ungulate populations and be completely safe and never have to worry about this. So the other issue is deer and elk, when they see that chunk of wire, it's no different than a branch and they duck their head, which puts their head in the hoop. And and that's a devastating issue. So um been working with the Fish and Game Department, the commission. Uh, that rule change request is going to the legislation. So really excited about that. Um, I Another thing that I learned about snaring, I snared a pack of wolves that I had been baiting in for a while, and uh, they'd been traveling the same ground, same routes for months, months after months after months. And I baited it up. Finally caught a wolf, got in there, got it killed. The next wolf I got caught, the whole pack came into where that wolf was laying there in the snare. Um, She died right away. And uh, they stop about 30 yards short where this big blowdown was, and they'd look at her from over that tree. And the only reason I know that is because in the snow there was a wolf highway coming right to that tree, and then they just stomped flat this huge circle where they'd stand there looking at her. They left that drainage that day, and they never came back. All year long, they they learn devastatingly quick how you know if if uh, something's caused harm and and they're not coming back. You think your house dog's smart? They they're drastically smarter. So, for my own for my own experience, um, wolf uh, foot trapping has been far more productive. And one of the reasons is the last thing they remember is their their buddy was standing here when they left him. And when they come back and he's not there, they instantly start searching for him and wandering around. And you got a whole lot better chance of catching the next wolf that way because they stay in that area where you caught the first one. So as long as you have a number of different sets out in that particular chunk of ground, you have a really good odds of picking up another wolf. And then the last thing they saw was that wolf standing there. So they're coming back that night to check on it and it's not there. So they go in search of it. And so you can, you can actually, I, I caught six in a row from the same pack doing just that. Wow. Um, so is this all piss post based trapping? 
the majority of my sets are, are PPOS, but I mix it up a bunch. You know, I, I figure that they, they, I've learned that they kind of have their own personalities. Um, some of them uh, may be dominant dogs, and, and they're going to run right to a P-Post and mark it. Um, some of them might be subordinate, and they're not interested in going over to mark over where King Kong just marked, but a food source might might attract them or a curiosity lure like mink oil or beaver caster or you know rotten fish or anything like that um, anything that's just drastically different that that's uh, going to capture their attention has been productive for me but i will say the number one set that i use and the number one set of both of our top trappers for our foundation um, is a people's set and and it's it's you're just playing on on their instincts you know they're 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 so dominant and territorial they're fighting Man, over territory all the time the amount of money it takes to just gas up your rig and get it as far back as you can then your your snowmobile's got to be topped off your snowmobile's got to be well equipped i've heard some horror stories of guys machines breaking down while running trap lines that's a nightmare traps are expensive man they're like they're not like 20 bucks and you got to do the dying and make sure that they're free of human scent and then you got to know like you got to be good you got to know where wolves live specifically where how they travel and then you got to put out these sets and then you got to figure out a loop that's efficient for when you go and check every 72 hours dude and it's a long winter i mean these guys are their their expenses are ridiculous and thank god they're doing it because like you said earlier if they weren't that's 600 wolf in the last two years that would not probably be dead by man and if maybe a percentage would be killed by other wolves but i bet a higher percentage would still be out there you know what i mean i I would think so and and there's i mean there's so much that goes into into play into into the the value of our program you think about what it takes the state so we have an idaho wolf control board that was founded by the governor of idaho that that those funds are used for lethal wolf removal um their average expense to remove a wolf because it takes them so much time to research and verify and all these different things that, that go into the state being able to so politically, legally, yeah, all the red tape. It costs them over $9,000 for every wolf they remove. So 65% of that is state tax funded. A portion of that's uh, funded by the the, um, uh, the livestock industry and a portion of that's funded from fish and game license and tag sales. Um, 65% of that state tax dollars. So if you add up the 600 wolves that the foundation has moved, has removed through volunteer funding, sponsorship dollars, membership dollars, that's over $3.5 million that would have had to been paid from the state to remove the same number of wolves. And and we're just making use of it. I mean, we're kind of playing on the passion of sportsmen um, to to get that accomplished, and it's working. That's that's my, my challenge to everybody is what can you do right now today? Even if you don't join the foundation, get involved. Stop complaining and, and step up. Get educated. Uh, go to the Fish and Game Commission meetings. Talk to your legislators help people understand what the problem is rather than uh, trying to throw down over Facebook keyboard warrior stuff rather than fighting with people try to help them understand those people they believe what they believe because that's all they know they don't live here they don't see the the you know the cow elk with the the baby you know the calf elk hanging out the backside of it all chewed up they don't see the, the moose with the hamstring chewed off trying to get up in the ditch that that can't stand that makes a man cry when he's driving by they don't see a caribou creek up north of sandpoint there uh, last year he went up there to set traps two years ago i guess three dead moose in a half a mile 
all chewed up, just the noses chewed off and the butthole chewed out. They never came back all year. They don't see that. And so they're, they're not getting fired up about it. They don't raise cattle. They, they aren't experiencing, you know, a guy's livelihood. He, he goes out and he comes back 40 pair short from, from the rangeland. And, and there's, no, there's, there's no funding to, to, to make up for all of that loss because it has to be a documented kill in order for them to collect any, any reimbursement for that stuff. So th- this is our way of giving back. And that's my ask to everybody that's listening is please look up the Foundation for Wildlife Management. Join us $35 a year. And if you happen to shoot a wolf, you get reimbursed for it. And, and we, we, you, you had asked me about what Tom was, was being reimbursed for the wolves that he's harvesting earlier. And I don't think I ever got around to talking about that, but so we have a statewide reimbursement year round statewide minimum. Um, it's hard to, hard to describe this. The minimum max reimbursement amount is $500 year round statewide. Um, so how the process works is you become a member for $35. You can sign up online at F, the number four, WM.org, F4WM.org. It's a little bit tough to remember, but it's the Foundation for Wildlife Management. You sign up on, online for $35. When you harvest a wolf, you send in a copy of your uh, Idaho Fish and Game check-in slip, which proves what unit the wolf came from. And you also um, send in a, a copy of uh, your expense receipts. When we receive those, we mail you a check, you keep the wolf. We don't ever see the wolf at all. That We go by the fishing game check-in slip. So your expense receipts is something everybody always asks questions about. <clears throat> your expense receipts, it's pretty simple. Anything that assisted getting you in the woods to harvest a wolf is reimbursable. Hats, boots, gloves, guns, ammunition, optics, your hunting pack, your 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 uh, you know pack gear and equipment, your travel expenses. Fuel is by far the number one expense that we get turned in, and the and the reason for that is because the majority of the wolves that we're reimbursing are actually uh, from trappers, and and trappers are out there. That's one thing that I really struggle to help people understand. I've got guys even that I've elk hunted with in the past and that I've known for most of my life and they hear, oh yeah, you know, it sounds good. You guys are doing great things, but I just don't join groups like that or whatever. They got, everybody's got an excuse or I don't have $35. They spent that last week on coffee, but, um, so I, I give them a hard time, but, uh, as you should, man, it, but that it's, um, I lost my train it's of thought. It's a no-brainer to, to basically put your money where your mouth is. If you truly care, especially Idaho, if you're from Idaho listening to this podcast, you're welcome that we talk about Idaho so much from the standpoint of we're explaining just how hard it is to hunt out here because, you know, I don't think Idaho elk tags should sell out. I don't. Th- I think they should reduce the number of tags, and, and I hate saying that. I, I do. I think that uh, there's a false narrative out there that Idaho's got all these elk and that come out and hunt. Well, I bet you there's, I bet the success rates are lower than ever this year. I guarantee it. And um, there's something you can do about it, especially you Idaho guys. There's 80,000 hunters in Idaho. Elk hunters. Elk hunters specifically. And y'all got 2,300 members total from 33 states. Idaho, you don't need to step it up. And I don't live in Idaho, but I have a cabin in Idaho I pay taxes in Idaho. I'm becoming a member today. I should have been a member years ago. Um, my good buddy Ryan Altus has always been pestering me about your group. He introduced us. Here you are. I'm writing a check today. And you guys, I encourage you to do the same because I can't comment on KHQ's Facebook post about wolves and how, like, literally you'll see comments about beavers coming back in Yellowstone. Who cares? And that's probably not even true. 
It's not. Well, beavers did come back, but it was from a transplant program. It had oh, nothing to do with the wolves. So there's all these silliness going on there on social media. You can uh, waste your energy and effort in emotional currency, or you can get your real currency out and help motivate you know, incentivize these badass trappers to because they're the ones that have a 37% success rate. Not us hunters would be out there. Incidentals ain't going to happen. And the Schneider boys are something special. They're the exception, not the rule. And so get out there, take action. And even Montana, like how are we going to get you? Are you guys in Montana yet? We're we're not. There's we've we've uh, made the attempt to to okay. breach that um, and expand into Montana. They have legislation on the books that um, makes what we do illegal, and so for that reason, until that rule is changed. But this is not a bounty. This is correct. a reimbursement. It is absolutely it's very a, black and white, in my opinion. Very black and white. We require a copy of your expense receipts. Um, for for every dollar, there, there's a there's a dollar worth of receipts for every dollar that we've ever funded for over 600 reimbursements. Um, this last year, we reimbursed for 160 Idaho wolves with 127 thousand dollars. And and I'm here to tell you guys that 127 thousand dollars didn't come out of thin air. We need your help. The the guys when 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 the most when most of us are sitting on our couch with our family playing with our kids watching football. There's a handful of guys out there killing themselves, blowing up snowmobiles, hiking out of the backcountry by themselves, killing themselves, bending over backwards, trying to get it done so the rest of us have elk to hunt. Please, please step up. Please help out. They they, they really, truly need it. And and the funds are, are seriously going to the cause. You know, I, I've um, done a lot of volunteer work for several different nonprofit wildlife organizations because I believe in wildlife conservation. I believe in, in giving back. I've been very blessed in my hunting career, and I really believe that that's um, it's just a, a calling of mine. I, I believe in giving back and, and making it great and leaving for, for my kids and your kids something great that I got to experience and I don't want that to go away for them. So that's, I'm very passionate about that. But uh, one of my biggest issues with a lot of those different organizations is you generate all this funding and you generate all the support and, and you work really hard and that funding goes to a state fund or a national fund and it goes elsewhere and, and the projects that get done locally um, aren't as big. All of this money stays in Idaho. Your, your dollars are going in the pocket of somebody that's just killed a wolf. And and for the, those of us who have a full-time job, who have a family, who have other obligations in life and things that we have to be doing during that time frame, I mean, we can't get out or maybe we physically can't can't get in the woods anymore or maybe we don't have a snowmobile, we don't have a four-wheeler, whatever it takes. You guys can help by becoming a member donating, um, volunteer. We, we have banquets. I'm trying to establish, I'd, I'd like to long-term goal, establish five different fundraising banquets across the state. If we could increase reimbursement amounts, if we had the funding to increase reimbursement amounts to $2,000 per wolf year-round, statewide, we would do it. But it takes money. And, and it, at that point in time, we think that most people would not have out-of-pocket expenses um, for harvesting wolves. Right now, uh, even at $1,000, as I mentioned, just for fuel alone, I'm at $1,600 per wolf for each of the 18 that I've taken. There are guys out there that are far better at it than me, but it's expensive, and, and it's, a, it's a huge commitment. So uh, that, that's, uh, that's who we are. That's what we do. It's a way to, to give back and help out. Um, I, I always tell everybody when they ask what, you know, what exactly do you do? Cause I get that question all the time. 
we bring those who want wolves managed together with the guys that have the ways and means of getting a job done, and they're doing it. We need your help. Guys, I uh, I just wanted to, to tell you and Justin that this guy's a real deal. I'm sitting right here looking him in the flesh. <clears throat> I just love that he's their spokesman, but he's he's articulate. He's well-delivered. He keeps his cool. He doesn't get all crazy because you were never going to have any success with somebody who's hot-headed. you got to be cool, calm, collective, have your ducks in a row, have your facts and figures, and have the experience in the mountains to really to do what you're doing. And I just appreciate you. Your actions speak louder than your words. I know that you're out there trapping yourself, living the lifestyle. You're guiding elk. You're elk hunter. You're a family man. You're volunteering your time. You're attending all those meetings. You're making no excuses. And for me, my hat's off to you. I got nothing but respect for you. And uh, I will post all the links on the show. And uh, I'm writing a check right now. Closing remarks, anything else you need to add? F4WM.org. It's pretty simple and pretty easy. Click the join button. We do. I will add this. We uh, started an online forum. One of the number one phone calls that I get is, uh, I live out of state. I'm coming to Idaho to hunt, and I heard about your program, and I really want to shoot a wolf. Can you help me? Can you help me learn? How do I do it? What do I need to do to accomplish that? So I started an online forum on our website. If you're a member, you can log in on our website and go to this online forum. It's not being utilized at this point in time. Um, there's been a few people that have got on there and commented. I actually got on there and shared a bunch of secrets uh, when it comes to wolf trapping, hoping to help people be be uh, you know That's more cool. productive. Um, and so uh, if you're out targeting wolves or you have a wolf experience, uh, become a member, hop on our online forum, and, and tell your story. Your story may help the next guy be successful. You know what's funny is I, I dropped something on this podcast one time Right after Avery and I had that wolf encounter, I was like, guys, you're driving. You want to you want the coolest hunt in America? Like come to Idaho and hunt wolves like it's darn near open year round. And there's a lot of private timber ground. I'll tell you where to go. Like I'll give away my my areas, not my elk areas, right. but I'll give away really productive. I had like seven or eight guys message me on Instagram. Some from like Texas and Oklahoma. I remember asking me, hey, are you serious? And I'm like, I'm always serious. And so I had one guy from Texas come up here and go wolf hunting, and I told him right where to go. I'll tell you offline. But I'll put it out there. If you're coming up to North Idaho and you need a place, I'll give you up-to-date information on where I heard or saw wolf sign the most. Go experience it. I mean, you don't have to go to Alaska. Just book a flight over to Spokane or Boise or Missoula and come over to Idaho and help us out and – a trophy of a lifetime. Absolutely. That, that's one of the things that, that I talk about often is the fact that we, you know, we have all these different sportsmen's groups and we have them for a reason because not everybody sees eye to eye on all the different topics, but right. we have archery groups, we have houndsmen groups, we have bird dog groups, we have, um, you know, the rifle hunting guys, we have the long distance shooters. Uh, we, we have people who just want to be in the woods, um, you know, camping and backpacking and sightseeing. The wolf topic brings everybody together, and, and I can't I can't say this enough. United we stand, divided we fall, and sportsmen have got to get together. And, and this is this is one thing that does unite everybody. Every single person is affected by wolves. I, I know people that have had wolves take their pet dog off their back porch. I I, I know people that that about that poor bastard camping with his family in Canada. Yeah, he was just drug out of his tent. Yep, drug out of his tent. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Buy a wolf. It was crazy. So, man, you got a long drive ahead of I you. Do. Thank you so much for coming. 
And I, I appreciate your time. And uh, let me write you a check right now, bro. Thank you, Dan. You bet. Hey, Elk Hunters. Corey Jacobson here from Elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic from planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between the university of elk hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters and for listeners of the elk shape podcast dan and i have teamed up to offer you a 20 percent discount when you sign up simply go to elk101.com click the link to the online course and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today. All right, guys, that's a wrap. I just want to thank Justin Webb for driving all the way over here. He drove two plus hours. That's how passionate is about his foundation. And I thought he dropped a lot of awesome knowledge. I think he's just, I mean, to finally meet him in person and really get to know him, man, that guy is pure gold. And I was super serious on the podcast and I'm serious right now. If you want to make a trip out to Idaho, get a hold of me and make sure that you are a member of this foundation for 35 bucks. Because if you come out here and kill a wolf, you can get at least 500 bucks for your time and reimbursement. That'll cover your airfare, your gas money or your tag or whatever. The tags are cheap, like 30 bucks cover your license right now it's around 150 or 160 bucks in idaho and we need your help and other states out there do too so the website is foundation for wildlife management.org i think the other website is just uh f the number four wm.org justin webb executive director sharp guy family man elk hunter wolf trapper and he volunteers a ton of his time practices what he preaches and i just can't thank him enough for coming on i hope to meet some of you in 2020 at the elk shape camps in the meantime like i always say just keep grinding towards your goals stay hungry figure out what you need to do to create a roadmap for success for 2020 it starts now even if you punch your tag it's lonely at the top and to stay on top you got to work even harder thanks for listening we'll catch you on the next one